January 4, 2022. It's the Watt for Pedro show.
is hot and sweet, whipped with maiden calm. I see a face too severe, turns and I am druggy. Yes, save for that one forgotten congratulating angle of her theater. Turn it on, empty. I couldn't stand the ovation. I'm a little cranky, but the party's still rocking on. We need to lose these little understandings. It's like losing buttons, coat unsealed from throats with burns in the neck of her desire. Fist clenched, seeking, falling, and landing. For her, I'd kill every too pretty junkie until his blood was sticky. Sound dizzy, heart boozy, with falling in loves. Why in my veins? show happy tuesday start off with john cotrain doing untitled original 11383 and this is from that every which way thing they found that those lost tapes uh then we had divine pocket bouncers with cranky at the party and because of those stonian software engineers with their skype invention i got with me jared michael nickerson welcome aboard jared Mike White, thank you so much for having me, man. Absolutely. You talking to me from Hoboken? I am Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. But what was the pad? Maxwell's played many gigs there on Washington Street. I know you're a legend there, man. I <laughs> played it and came through and they'd be talking about you. <laughs> I think the first guy to book Minutemen there was Ira Kaplan, who has a band now called Yole Tango. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, I came up there in the mid-80s with a band called Human Switchboard out of Cleveland. Oh, yeah, that's right. Ohio, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Dayton man, you know, raised in Dayton, drinking that water, that funk water. <laughs> Bob Pollard. Yes, sir. Right? Got my voices for sure. Right, at least three or four albums a year. <laughs> 
man is prolific. There must be something in the water, Jared. Jared, I'm interested in your journey through music. Can you please bring me your earliest musical recollection? Um, one of my earliest music recollections was um, when I was in military school and I had snuck down into the rec room to turn on the radio. And Mike, back in those days, of course, it was AM radio. And not only was it AM radio, but it was unformatted radio. Yeah, great. And so my recollection is hearing um, Four Tops Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, followed by Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love. Whoa, yeah, Four yeah. Tops, great. I think one of the only bands that haven't replaced a member in a long time. ZZ Top was one until they just lost Dusty. And Jefferson Airplane, yeah, Somebody to Love. Yeah, so, you know, man, hearing those two back to back, and I danced through both of them. And it wasn't until later that I realized both have driving bass and drums. I was going to say Jack Cassidy. Yes, sir. Love yeah. him. Wow, yeah. Well, Big inspiration to me. Okay, so th this Pat, well, you said military school, so you're growing up on a, in a fort? Well, it was it was sort of like a a little, a mini castle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was and I was kind of a, you know, I was kind of a rowdy little kid and and um so my mother thought i needed a little discipline and also she probably wanted to get her party on i don't know right so it's like, so, like an academy yeah 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 sixth to eighth grade and um it, it had to be fairly expensive because i was around all these kind of like rich kids who i guess their parents wanted to, to get their party on too <laughs> yeah it was lord of the flies for real william golden what a book <laughs> scary book <laughs> <laughs> so, was there musical instruments around? Not really. What I did there, um, I played actually in the um, military marching band, and I was um, a snare drum. Okay. So, you learned so, traditional grip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, you, yep. Got to tell the so, listeners, yeah. listeners, no match grip, because you're, you're wearing that snare drum in a sling around your shoulder. So, that's why the one hand is holding the stick different. That's right. And the other thing is you have to learn how to, like, march with that. So Absolutely. that you balance the drum so it doesn't bounce. Right, right. All over your hip and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Interesting. They teach you to read and all that? They didn't teach us to read, but I had, my, my mom started me on piano. I wanted to play bass right away, but she says, you can't do anything until you get some piano under you. So I had seven years of piano, you know. So there was a piano in the pad. Um, no, no, no. I went to there was a there was in Dayton. There was a um, music store called Howard's Music, which was the fly store, man. I mean, they were so fly. I'll just digress for a minute. They were so fly that I wanted to buy one of those Ampeg Grow Top F hole bases. I remember those. I saw yeah, the guy at Steppenwolf play one. And before I could get the money up, they discontinued them, and that's when they started the Dan Armstrong plexiglass bass. Right, that weighed a ton, but looked kind of cool. Yeah, and so I got one of those. I got a fretless one. And if you remember, they had like an Adobe pickup. Oh, yeah. And, well, you could put it in all Adobe... different kinds of pickups, right? Couldn't you slide them in there or something? Yep, yep, yep. Well, mine cracked. Oh. So Howard was cool enough to actually reach out to um, England and, and speak to the cat. And he sent a pickup for my bits. Great. This, this is my local music store. Right. So, so you know. Much yeah. respect. Much respect to Mr. Howard. Yeah, but that's where I was taking piano lessons. Okay. And then, you know, I did some home lessons because we had a piano in the crib and stuff. And now, so I... Now what about the, the left hand? Team. Did you make the connection between the left hand and bass guitar? Um, I don't know so much. I think it was it was more just the whole symphonic idea of the fact that you look at a piano and really everything is right there. 
And so you can, you know, as, as a bassist, as you know, we are kind of like the glue. Yeah, we connect rhythm to the melody. And, and so in, in, that, in that situation, me starting with piano, then switching to drums, I kind of had a strong harmonic and a strong rhythmic foundation that I combined on bass. You know, that's right up my alley. You know, people say four-string guitar, right, for a bass. You know, I say four-string drum set. There you go. Yeah. It's a really new kind of understanding, but actually cats were doing it for a long time because when you hear that bump of a bass gluing things together, like you say, Jerry, oh, man, there's nothing yeah. like it. And the piano, even though it's got some lower notes, it don't have the same feel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know Charlie Mingus, great bass man, but he composed on piano. Yeah, I composed from bass. Yeah. Because it's all right there. I agree. You know what? I've been composing on bass a long time. I think that's one of the futures of bass is, co is a composition tool. Because you leave all that room open for the other collaborators. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, we, we have a new, a new generation of bassists. Yeah. Um, I, call, I call them bedroom bassists. But um, we have a new generation where really they're, they're so they're so busy in the the sixty four note upper <laughs> register that there's really nothing anybody else can do. <laughs> you know, but they don't understand physics. When you take those low notes and you play them fast, like a mandolin or a guitar, you you end up really little because of the big wavelengths and low frequencies. You know, I think it's a search for the right notes, not the most notes. Well, we're old school like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it took me a lifetime. I'm still learning. <laughs> Look, you gave me uh, some more of this uh, divine pocket bouncers. I got to know about these people. This problem. Oh. Second premonition. <laughs> Let's listen.
Mr. is larger than you and that is all But now things have changed with a couple spins of the sun You have grown tolerant to make a monster wrong
Walk for Pedro show that chunk of music has started off. Divine Pocket Bouncers. Second premonition. And then after that, brand new from the Collision Stories up in the Bay Area, I just got to see Jorge Bachman and Brian Day of this. They're half the band. And this is uh, the, the B-side of the album they just put out. Abbott Obscurity, number two. Then from S.R. Woodward, I Can Make a Monster Run. And finally, Dayton Flick with I'm Mad. Oh, yeah. Sounds like hometown, Dayton Flick, oh, F-L-I-C. Yeah. Yes, well, let me ask you this. What about the basement band, garage band, bedroom band in the afternoon, like during, I don't know, the academy days or high school or whatever? Um, it was big in high school for sure because, okay. um, you know, dating back in, in the um, 70s, basically, um, first of all, as you, I don't know if you're really familiar with Ohio, but but Southern Ohio and Northern Ohio are two completely different sensibilities. Tortoise taught me that. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? I like playing everywhere, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Northern is like really like Rust Belt, like, right. you know, and then sub, I mean, Southern Ohio is like, I mean, Cincinnati's right across the river from Kentucky. Right. Newport. And Dayton's 30 minutes from Cincinnati. So it has Southern sensibilities. Absolutely. And you have a, a town with Southern sensibilities, but then you also have a lot of um, commerce in the fact that you have inland steel. Um, NCR National Cash Register, you have all the car companies, and you have Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, so you have also, families. Cincinnati's got Procter and Gamble. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have all these families that are making some nice change back in those days. And so what do they do? They trick out their basements into like entertainment dens. Ah. Okay. So, you know, back in those days, also there were music departments in the high schools. Yeah, very cool. And very the high schools all had talent shows, had three talent shows a year. So you didn't have to, you know, stories you hear from folks about how, like, well, yeah, I had they, they had to sneak me in the back door to play with the band and all that kind of stuff. You didn't have to do that in Dayton. Oh, there were the cool. churches, there were the talent shows, and there were the parents' dens. And between those three, we played a lot of music. And th this is why you're a teenager. <laughs> yeah, it happened. Well, you know, SoCal, we had some a school program. You know, Charlie uh, Mingus came out of that. Uh, Eric Dolphy, and, you know, nice. yeah, that that's a shame that that got lost. You know, I guess some people yeah. they decided that music and arts was just kind of fluff or something crazy. I have no idea what they were thinking. Yeah, they weren't thinking. They weren't. <laughs> so uh, not about the so. Uh, you end up getting a bass guitar and an amplifier. What was your first bass? Oh, it was that Dan Armstrong. Well, no, actually, my first bass was a harmony bass. Ah, harmony. I remember those. Yeah. So it was kind first of... bass was a... Was it hollow body wood? It wasn't. It wasn't. It was It was a solid body. Okay, okay. Because a lot of harmonies were hollow, too, with pickup in there and stuff. But did you ever get to the stand-up or stuff like that? You know, I did stand-up when I went to music school. Okay, okay. Because after... Graduated from Notre Dame with a business degree, I realized music was going to be my thing. And um, I had a really, really influential um, instructor in Notre Dame. His name was Father Was Kirkin. And basically, he's pretty famous because he had a high school program in Chicago 
that birthed a few of the, the, the horn players in, in Chicago Transit Authority. Ah, the people, you know, I'm probably a Chicago, not CTA, but they were a big band in the 70s. Going back to the beginning. Right, right. <laughs> so um, he comes to Notre Dame and he immediately starts a jazz program. And in fact, Mike, I have to say, he was the one who introduced me to Electric Miles. Oh, wow. Okay. I had heard Miles before, and I started with him electrically and then went back into his catalog. So the Bitches Brew was your first thing? Bitches Brew, Jack Johnson, oh, yeah. Big Fun. On the corner, Smiles, Smiles. Yep, all of those. That, that's where I started. With Live my, Evil. And, yep, you know, Michael oh, Henderson, Michael I got to tell you, Michael Henderson, I, I really dug his band. I know he's from, Miles found him at the Apollo. He's playing for Stevie Wonder. But man, and especially compared to other fusion uh, bass players. Well, he wasn't fusion. He's from uh, Motown. Well, he was from Motown, but he was the perfect bass absolute, player. Absolute. Miles, if anything, Miles has to be applauded for, as being a, a, a selector. He knew how to put knew bands how- around himself. You're right. You're right. Going way back to the 50s in his quintets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of guys, I think, oh, I'm the star, so I'm going to put a bunch of little midgets around me. But Miles is, no, I'm going to put the best guys around me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and his music stands the test of time because of Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul Chambers. Oh, my God. What a bass player. Sir. But I was going to say the other guy besides Michael Henderson, some of those things have Dave Holland in, on the stand-up. Yes. Incredible cat, too. And so you asked me about stand-up. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so um, after after the, the MD, basically, he wrote me a nice letter of recommendation. And at that time, you had to send in, like, check this out, reel-to-reel audition tapes. <laughs> So I recorded something and I was accepted to um, Loyola in New Orleans, Berkeley and New England's Conservatory in Boston. And I decided to go to New England because it would seem to be a little bit more personal to me. Seemed like they would, you know, wasn't as, as cookie cutter as some of the others were. And it was valuable to me. But at New England, I had to play standard bass. I had to play acoustic. Not only that, but I had to learn how to bow. Arco. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned, you know, um, the French. I did the French style, you know, French or German. Sure, overhand, underhand, holding the bow, people. And so um, I was in New England for, at New England for two years. And then, and, and one thing, like the thing I learned about stand-up bass was that it wasn't for me. <laughs> Why do you, I, I tried, but it was... <laughs> You know, I mean, I, did, I, I will admit, did strengthen my hands. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it is something to be able to do that, to really be able to play that instrument. But I'm just, I'm an electric player, man. Yeah. I'm an electric for sure. What's interesting so is I, the cat, we yeah, owe, so, like, you know, the cat we owe a lot for electric bass. James Jamerson actually came from the stand-up. A lot of the other cats came from guitar, right? Well, you know, another thing about me is that um, I play most of the stuff that you that you have played your audience is being played by thumb. I'm not a fingers player. That's okay. I like, I it's like all vocabulary, you know, pick thumb, fingers, whatever. Oh, yeah. And now, you know, and so, the, so I even developed that to the point where now I'm like a banjo player on bass Whoa. where my thumb is the predominant, but I use my next two fingers too. So I can get into a little bit more. complex. You, Jared, you, know, you know, those early Fender P basses, they had the finger thing. Uh, below the G That's string. Right. I think it was for That's holding right. with your fingers so you could use thumb. That's right. Because nobody really knew what to do, right? Leo, 
he didn't really play. He just made it for his friends so they didn't have to take this big thing and uh, tie it to the, because they tore it in station wagons. Yeah. And my harmony had one of those little rests under okay. the G string too. My so I just, I locked into that. That was, that was me, man. And th you know, there's something about putting your thumb on that string. I tell you, there's you more, there's probably more string, meat. You really, you know. Yeah, there's probably more meat on it. It's one reason why I try to play with the index finger and the middle finger together like a flipper. Ah, I mean, because when you yeah. got more meat on it, you're kind of your own analog compressor. I mean, I would really like lean into it on, on you know, and then you get that you get just this, this big sound that I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't get that with your fingers, but like you said, more meat. Yeah, you can you can go along the side, you know. Larry Graham, I know he came up the popping and stuff, but he also did a lot of thumb stuff. He started off thumb. And yeah, even yeah. like this new movie, well, it's not new, but the movie that came out last year, um, what, Summer of Soul? Oh, yeah, Summer of Soul. If you look at the Sly Stone footage, he's playing with his thumb. He's not popping. Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, you can hear it like in, uh, I want you to, uh, I want to thank you for letting me be myself. Boom, 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 boom. That's big, thick thumb stuff. Big thumb. I'm a big thumb advocate. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this this professor, and then New England, Berkeley School of Music, finding out you don't dig the stand-up, you want to play the electric with your thumb. What happens yep. next? Next, I... Um... I joined a band by the name of Hypertension. We were like a soul band. Here we are. Here we are. A, a band of color. And what do we call ourselves? Hypertension. Okay. So, <laughs> Which means high blood pressure, people. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't thinking, but we were just saying, you know, like, we get hyper, we get tense. Yeah, we get, yeah. We get <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and we were, we were a badass band, man. And um, so, you know, back in Boston in those days, um, cover bands were like were like the thing. And and what made them what what helped make them the thing was that there was a whole cover band circuit in Canada. And the cover band circuit in Canada, basically these these um, these clubs were like in like large brownstones where they could also house the band. So the band, you could go up there and you would play like in Montreal at a place for like a week or two weeks if they liked you. And then you'd go to Vancouver City and you go, you know, you travel around and you could make really, really good money. So but we were doing that. So we would do that to make money. And then we'd come back and, you know, Boston was thriving back. Cambridge was thriving. Um, Jonathan Swift's, Jack's. Um, there were a number of places. And we got a nice reputation, started to write originals to go along with the covers. And then we ran into a cat by the name of Lyman Underwood. And he was part of the Underwood Deviled Ham fam. So, so yes, deep, deep, deep. <laughs> and so we, we went from like, you know, playing in our street clothes, riding in the back of, of the van on the equipment to, I'm serious now, riding in limos with five changes of handmade outfit. We're have, having a rehearsal complex um, the whole night. Well, there was a little friction in the band. And once we got it kind of like close to Gravy Street, they decided to boot me out. Oh, shit. So, so they booted me out. But what oh, they didn't man. realize is I had handled, I've been handling band business since since back in the 70s. That's how long I've been doing that. And so I was handling the band business for the, for hypertension. And what they didn't realize is that, well, two things happened that were blessed. We started to record one of my tunes. And when they kicked me out the band, basically they hadn't, the company hadn't um, 
they didn't get my signature to, to be able to release the, the tune. So I was able to negotiate signing so that they could, they could release the tune and and absolve me of my one seventh debt that the band had accrued. Because I mean, all that stuff wasn't for free. It, you you know, the guy returned. <laughs> that's that's no, but the I key word. <laughs> Look, Jared, I'm gonna have to, to I'm gonna have to hold you up a little bit, Jared, because we're at the end of the first hour. Oh, January 4, twenty twenty two edition. What Pedro show special guest guest Jared Michael Nickerson. Hold tight for hour two. Yes, sir. January 4th, 2022. It's the second hour of the Watt for Pedro show. At the edge, high above the rocks. At the edge of nothing, it was just a game. They couldn't stop. Young, her arm up in the wind Where the sea is crashing Wilder than the beginning He's going down He's going down He's going down She loved the death of stars
Your dream begun. 
lot for Pedro. Shall we start off the second hour? Freddie Johnson, Death of Stars. Then the Hellbeans, brand new, Court of Appeal. Tom Hall with Regression of Consciousness. Red Go-Kart with Engine Driver Song. Bomber's Prendon. I'm 28 and I'm playing it straight in Tokyo. Finally, <laughs> Freddie Johnson. <laughs> His titles are crazy. A responsible from Freddie Johnson. Okay, didn't mean to fuck, uh, cut you off like that, Jerry. So continue. Uh, some drama here. They, they want to scissor you, but they got to compensate you. Right. So I was able to like um, absolve my one-seventh production company debt by giving them the release to release the, the tune. And then they completely screwed up the band. They basically wanted, they didn't want the band on the, on the record. They wanted to release it as just the lead single. And that's what they did, which started to fracture the band. And um, so, you know, the band, it dissolved in maybe a year and a half after that. But by that time, I was back in Dayton. And um, I met a cat by the name of Dean Hummins, who was the keyboard player in, in, in nationally recorded bands like Sun and Dayton. And um, I, met, I met Chris Bowman who's a uh, guitarist who now, he was also in Dayton, and now he plays in the Ohio Players, their touring edition. And with those cats, that's where Dayton Flick came from. Yeah. Dean had received a, um, received a notice that Sony Records was having a um, contest. And he got um, myself, Chris, Jenny Douglas, who has been one of um, Pink's background singers, maybe the last two decades. Um, Roger Parker, who was the drummer in Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame and did some work with the later part of Slay, got us all together in his basement. And on four track, that's when we cut um, I'm Mad and, and a few other tunes, sent it off. And of course, crickets. We didn't hear anything from Sony. But, <laughs> but what it did do was that um, the band from the Switchboard was four years into the career, had built up some steam. They would come to Dayton and play like the Walnut Hills and the 808 Club. And they had a gig there, and their bassist didn't want to come down from Cleveland because they were, they were in Dayton recording with Dean. Dean recommended me. We learned a, a number of tunes that day and played the show, and then two weeks later I got a call and asked if I wanted to join the band. So I did. I joined the band. I would go, come up from Dayton. Myself and Ron Metz, the drummer, we would, we played, I know you love this, we probably played together, just the two of us, three times more than, than what we played as a band as far as rehearsing. We got to be really tight. I'm into and, that. I'm way into that. There's yeah, something about man, a drummer you, and a bass player getting together, man. Oh, it's, it's heaven. It's heaven. Especially, it. especially if, if you have a, a cat that's listening to you and working with you. Yeah, yeah. Not playing at you. A absolute, you know? absolute. So we got to be really good, and the band started to come up, and we'd come up to the East Coast and do Maxwell's and Dan Satiri and Peppermint. What's, what's the boss? Uh, what's the boss? Can I ask you, Jared? Was the boss guy Michael Pfeiffer? Huh? Um, Bob Pfeiffer. Bob Pfeiffer, that's his name. I, I think Bob, I met him once. Bob Pfeiffer and Lerner. <laughs> I think I met him once years ago. I hear you. I'm sure. Okay. Char charismatic dude. You're, you're, somebody's coming into my hangar. Somebody's landing in my hangar, right? Something like this. Yeah, that was their big record. Okay. 
Yeah, it was landing in my hangar. <laughs> That's a great title. But I, I remember meeting the cat once, and, and obviously I've got his name wrong, so I'm fucked up. Bad memory and stuff, but but you dug it. You got to tour. You got to play around. You got to, and plus you got teamed up with that drummer man. Got to know a lot of folks because of that man. And you know, as you know, it's different when you come in with a band like. I mean, we got to the point where we were like CBGB's New Year's Eve band. Okay. And you know how it is. They only have they only have the most popular bands right. on New Year's. You know. So we got to that point. I got to the point where. Louise and Hilly Crystal were like friends. Whoa. So, you know, after, after that band, after Human Switchboard dissolved, which it dissolved, I mean, we had we had so many close calls with record companies, as did everybody back then, because everybody was throwing money around for production deals. But we had a number of close calls. And at the end of the, the last one, basically, the two leaders decided that they had spent eight years together, and that was eight years enough. So... <laughs> They dissolved the band, and I was up here in New York with no band. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. You take the L out of Lover, and it's over. <laughs> look, look, you gave me some Charlie Musselwhite. I want to play this. Oh, Charlie. Ain't nothing right in 
Okay, get ready now. Here he comes, Greg Tate. Uh, his words go in one ear and stay there. Let's say hello to all the gangster priestesses in the house. Got uh, Peck T. Who wants to get home, relieve her babysitter. <laughs> Buddha blessed and booyah blasted. These are the words that she manifested. Buddha blessed and booyah blasted. These are the words that she manifested. A grim little sister in a black pleather raincoat. 
She stepped to the mic and said, repeat after me, there's no such thing as alternative hip-hop. There's no such thing as alternative hip-hop. No such thing as alternative hip-hop. So my boy Boo, in a blue silk hoodie, popped up to ask us, so you think hip-hop is like fucking what? Why'd he go and say that? She said, hip-hop is like your mama. Your mother's so hip-hop, I seen her laying pipe in Alaska. Your mother's so hip-hop, she yelled, hope before I even asked her. <laughs> your mother's so hip-hop, she thinks Biz Markie's cute as shit. Your mother's so hip-hop, she told... Oh, man. Your mother's so hip-hop, she thinks Biz Markie's cute as shit. Your mother's so hip-hop, she told you when it was time to get off your own dick. Next time you see mother, listen before you pop your weed speak. Buddha blessed and booyah blasted. These are the words that she manifested. Hip-hop is inverse capitalism. Hip-hop is reverse colonialism. Hip-hop is the world the slaveholders made sent into niggified future shock. Hip-hop is the plunter that came from down under, macking heaven for fun. Hip-hop is the black aesthetic byproduct of the American dream machine, our culture of consumption, commodification, and subliminal seduction. Where George Clinton warned us about media urge overkill, the pimping of the pleasure principle. Hip-hop embraces the pleasures of the pimping principle. Hip-hop is the first black musical movement in history where black folks pimped themselves for the white boy beat them to it. Hip-hop pimped the funk. Hip-hop pimped the funk, the funk, the P-funk, the bomb, before the white boy and heavy metal too. See, hip-hop is the perverse logic of capitalism pursued as an art form. Like capitalism, hip-hop converts raw soul into a commodity. Like capitalism, hip-hop has no morals, no conscience, and no ecological concern for the scavenged earth or the scavenged American minds. It will wreck. It will wreck in its pursuit of new markets. But unlike Sigourney Weaver's nemesis alien, hip-hop is not the other man's rape fantasy of the black sex machine gone berserk. See, hip-hop is James Brown's pelvis, digitally grinded into techno-morphine. Hip-hop is dope-nology, the only known antidote for prime-time sensory deprivation. There's no such thing as alternative hip-hop because the only alternative to hip-hop is dead silence, and we all know such silence signifies a lack of breath. There's no such thing as good hip-hop and bad hip-hop, progressive hip-hop and reactionary hip-hop, politically incorrect hip-hop and hip-hop with a message. It's either hip-hop or it ain't shit. (laughs) Hip-hop is beyond good and evil. Hip-hop is beyond life and death. Hip-hop was dead, but hip-hop reanimated. Hip-hop does not live on Yo! MTV Raps. Hip-hop does not live on Yo! MTV Raps. Where hip-hop currently resides is beneath the noise. Where all the fly girls and boys use hip-hop as a form of telemetry, telepathy, and telekinesis. Hip-hop is how you say I love you to a hip-hop junkie. Hip-hop is the password into the cult of hip-hop infomaniacs. You know hip-hop when you see it. You may not see hip-hop coming for it sees you. Hip-hop is not what it is today, but what it could be tomorrow. See, hip-hop ain't shit, but everything is hip-hopable. Mad flavor, uncorped, unbeatable. Hip-hop is pumas and a hoodie today, but why not back to leather fringe and sequence tomorrow? If hip-hop wanted to be that corny, who could argue with it but a motherfucker who was faded? What's hip-hop today could easily become passe. Arguing with hip-hop about the nature of hip-hop is like arguing with water about the nature of wetness, like Bunny Whaler said, some things come to you, some things come at you, but hip-hop, it flows right through you. Hip-hop is so far gone up its own ass, you can't even speak on it unless you follow the trail of hip-hop's intestines out the lower end. Hip-hop is the rattlesnake that bit off its own tail, then listened to the death rattle warning the head that it was swallowing up the body. 
Hip-hop is what happened when the black community became the Bermuda Triangle, lost track of itself on the radar screen of Reaganomics. The blip that boom bipped turned up to announce black is back all in. We're going to exterminate our own next of kin if we don't watch out, yo. Folk want to know if uh, white people like hip-hop, how can it still be hip-hop? That's like asking if black people like dirty hair, is he still Clint Eastwood? Hip-hop is beyond black nationalism. Hip-hop is not hung up on counter-supremacy because it reigns supreme like all the other dope fiends. Hip-hop is half black and half Japanese, digital chips on the shoulders of African lips. Hip-hop is black Prozac. Hip-hop is if you can't join them, beat them. If you can't beat them, blunt them. Hip-hop is black sadomasochism. Hip-hop is where the hurting ends and the feeling begins, or is that the other way around? Hip-hop is how we rip off the band-aids, pour saltpeter on the wounds. Hip-hop is Ralph Ellison, who once said the blues is like running a razor blade along open sore. If it wasn't for bad English and hip-hop, I wouldn't have no blues at all. See, hip-hop is my black cat moan. Hip-hop is my black cat scan. Hip-hop is I need to stop. It's time for my medicine. Time to face the music again. Buddha blessed. Booyah blasted. These are the words that she manifested.
For Pedro Show, that chunky music star of Charlie Musselwhite with The Neighborhood. Then Greg Tate, live in 1995, What is Hip Hop? Finally, Jay's Bubble Troop with Bubbling, Kill the Buzzing. So, please hip us to this, uh, yeah, Jay's Bubble Troop and Charlie Musselwhite and awesome brother Greg Tate, who we just lost. Yes. Well, out of, out of all three of those, I'll start with the two short and go to the long. The, um, Charlie, Charlie was a revelation. As you know, he's a blues master. Absolutely. He, he learned from the masters. Absolutely. And, and just as he learned, he was as gracious to teach. And my short story about Charlie, <laughs> we were in Vancouver, and, and I come down ready to go, and I'm like, maybe, maybe one minute after what call time was. And the first thing he says to me is like, you know, Jerry, when you're on time, you're already late. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness, you just dropped the bomb on yeah. me. Well, and and I, I, I understood exactly what he meant. What he meant. He says, if you want to be on on time is, is on time when you're leaving. For you to be on time, you have to be early so that you're ready to leave at that time. That's right. So, <laughs> so I, I thank him for that. I thank him for that. 
Okay. So that's Charlie. Um, what was the other one you mentioned besides Craig? Oh, oh, Bubble Jay's Troop. Bubble Troop. That's going to be my new thing that's going to happen later this ah, year. Ah, so this is, this is an, okay, stuff. this is the most occurring thing. It's centric and um, I got a few folks helping me, like V. Jeffrey Smith with his studio out in Jersey City. He's yeah. helping me with that. And, Jersey uh, City, W. V. Jeffrey, just to, 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 to quickly give him, you yeah. know, his, his flowers. Um, any sax you hear on the Billy Ocean hits, Caribbean Queen. Yeah. Get into my car. That's V. Jeffrey. Oh wow! Okay. Then the band, the Family Stand, which had an underground um, R and B hit, um, Ghetto, Ghetto Heaven. Ghetto Heaven. Jeffrey, okay. and he's he's developed himself, and he also produced um, one of Daryl Hall's records, solo records. Great singer, Daryl. He's um he's a great singer. Yes, yeah, so, he, so he's a master producer. He he's a master, you know, a saxophonist. And just a great, great guy, great ear. So that's him. Now, when we get to Mr. Tate, that's 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 a story that might that could be just that you could do um, part one and part two. You could do two shows. <laughs> if if your show is two hours, we could do four hours just on Greg Tate. <laughs> yeah. But I'll give it to you like this: the thing about Greg with me yeah. is, um, as you know, when you're in a band, and if you are the sole leader of the band, meaning you have to make all musical decisions and all business decisions, it's very hard not to let the two bleed into each other. That kind of poisons you in a way where if there's some turbulence, like if people are late or they don't know the material, or if they're asking for more money, but then they're not really producing on stage, or you know they're not putting you in a position to ask for more money from the promoters or things of that nature, that becomes a really tough, tough nut to crack. Especially yeah. if you're trying to be an artist too. If you're trying to, you know, to, to be in the flow of, of being a player too. With Greg, we were able to understand that we both had, had worn both hats before, but we didn't have to do it in burnt sugar. In burnt sugar, we call it church and state. Church was like the state of grace and 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 you know, all kinds of musical amplitudes, and state was basically the hard business of getting the band working and getting folks paid. Sure. And we did it to the point where the, Mike, the band is 22 years old. Whoa. It's an off-the-grid big band from 16 to 25 yeah. that is 22 years old with 20 pieces of product self-produced, a world-renowned reputation off the grid. Righteous. And how did you meet them? Um, well, I, I met Greg actually through his work at the Village Voice. Yes, he's a writer man, people. Wrote great he about music. About, see, I had a band named JJ Jumpers, which is part of the Black Rock Coalition. Ah, and okay. we really got to know each other because I was actually the Black Rock Coalition's first director of operations. I think we, uh, the Fishbone Cats had a chapter out here. They did, they did. There was a chapter out on the West Coast after the East Coast chapter had been about three or four years old. Right, and right. Norwood, and, Norwood yeah. Fisher, great bass band. Oh, mad, mad great. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, what got me into the BRC was the fact that um, I would go to some of the meetings, and when the, the, the initial meetings basically weren't just musicians. They were artists of, of all types, uh, folks of color who just basically wanted to riff with other folks 
about, you know, the troubles they were having and everything and, and how they could maybe, you know, jump the hurdles and get, and get, and get to some, you know, making some paper and, and get some exposure. And what the band people were talking about in particular when they were talking about CBGBs is they would talk about the, the uh, thing of that CBs had what was called an audition night. Yeah. And basically you would, um, you first you had to come in, sign up and all that. And then they, if, eventually they'd give you a slot. And then this, when they gave you a slot, you would be graded for your musical performance. And you'd also be, uh, it, it would be noted like how many people you brought in and things of that nature. And these these band leaders were saying like, well, they were, you know, bringing in people and all that, but they never got the call back. And the great thing with CB, since they were doing six bands a night, you could start off as like the opening band, build your audience, and all of a sudden, a year later, be a headliner. That's be a headliner, walking out of there with 800 or so dollars. And back in those days, that was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, but these bands were saying they never got that call back, and they felt that it was it was racial, and that didn't sound right to me because I knew Hilly and Louise personally. Yeah, you know, so I went down and talked to them, and 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 you know what happened? They right. gave me two nights, and that's when we had the first Stalking Heads festival. And after that, after that, which had the Bad Brains, Living Color, Michael Gregory. Um, all kinds of bands on it. Um, after that, two nights, and the folks at CB saw all those folks in there, and, and they, they they looked at the bar tab. Yeah, drinking beers. None of those bands had problems getting booked at CBs ever again. Okay, that shows you if people come together. That stuff can happen. That's right. You just need somebody to let you in. Okay, so and, Greg, 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 uh, that's how you met him. Okay, and now how did, how does Burt Sugar come together? Well, Burn Sugar came together because Greg had this this idea of a band. He, he had an idea of of like sort of like a cross of the Art Ensemble of Chicago, Sunrise Orchestra, P Funk, and Electric Miles. Okay. <laughs> and as he as as he's been noted to say, he said like basically I wanted to put together a band that I heard in my head but didn't hear any place else. Okay. So Greg invited myself and Vijay Iyer and Bruce Mack and Trevor Holder and a number of cats down to a rehearsal room, and he wanted to to um, to try just to experiment with with you using Butch Morris's going to the Butch Morris's conduction system, which Mike is a way to create seemingly scripted music using simply hand gestures and baton gestures in real time. Like a conductor. Yeah. But but no no score. Yeah, I understand. No score. He's he but he, no he's score. a shot caller and, and so everybody's and so, in the moment taking direction from him. Yeah, yeah. But the lovely thing about it is you know if with classical music and even some pop music, you have to cert have a certain amount of technical ability to play certain things. <laughs> yeah. Things could beyond you. But in conduction, you only have to work with what you personally have under your fingers at that time. Right, right. You're speaking from yourself. Yeah. So we did that, and and we had a great time. We, we you know, sometimes one time is, is the only time. So we did it again. We had a better time. Then um, through Hilly and Louise, we booked a few gigs. That they had, they had a 
they had a basement room called CB's, Un- CB's Underground. That's right. And we booked two shows there and had a great time. And then we went in the studio and cut the first record, Blood on the Leaf, in 1999. And then 20 years. And what did you say, 20 pieces of music? That's right. Wow. All of it's on Bandcamp now, too. Anybody can go to Bandcamp, put in Burn Sugar Orchestra, and they'll see it. It's, it's there for them to see. All the releases, all the all the volume of product that we've done, you know, over, over the years. Now, now when you uh, worked with Greg, did he bring in demos, or did you guys, like, create at the practices? Well, a lot of times we created right in the studio. Yeah, that's what, yeah, okay, so he didn't, like, bring in little demos here, try to do this. You guys all collaborated together to bring it. It was a mixture. It was a mixture. There were things that we created right in the studio on conduction. There were things where he would um, bring in a loop, and we would play in a loop, like the, our latest release, Angels Over Okanda. It basically, the, the long 18-minute tune is based off a loop that Greg brought in. And then just let us all like freestyle and wild, wild style, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And and then also we 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 asked, you know when we first came out, we were basically the, the new kids on the block with the conduction thing in a in a funk pop, you know, context. And so we were able to play, you know, a lot of a lot of very prestigious places and. Um, and and did very well. Traveled, got paid well. But after about five or six years, it sort of caught on with other bands. And also, we weren't the new kid on the block, but we were kind of moved into our next realm by um, Lord Greer at the Apollo Theater. Whoa. She had planned to do a tribute to James Brown, but didn't want to hire a James Brown cover band. So her thought was Burnt Sugar you know, why don't we come in and caramelize a few James Brown tunes? And so we did that. It went really, really well. And then all of a sudden, we became sort of like the new kid on the block of if if there was an artist that the, the presenter or the, the audience of a particular venue really, really liked. Let's bring in Burnt Sugar to reimagine their songbook. And that brought us a whole second life. Wow. Wow. Okay. Shows you people what a gig can do. <laughs> it can yes. lead to, right? Yes. Look, we're at we're, the end of the second hour, Jared. January right. 4th, 22, 2022 edition of Watt Pedro Show special guest, Jared Michael Nicholson. Hold tight for hour three. January 4th, 2022. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro Show.
from Pedro Show. Start off the third hour. B-S-A-C. Juliet and Romeo. Then Viv Coringham. Al Margolis. Skyline Sunset number one. Then uh, Josh Bass Jam with Skateboard Wheels. Yeah, this is Treacherous Jaywalkers. Prack. <laughs> Probably a Prack cassette tape, right? This is Charlie Hayden's son, Josh Hayden, huh? And he'd been learning how to play bass. He asked me to produce his record back in uh, this time, 1984. Whoa. Nice. A little while ago, yeah. And then finally, BSAC, Wretched of Earth. Jared, I got to ask you, what does BSAC stand for? Burn Sugar Orchestra Chain. Ah, okay. And what's the story behind it? It's the Greg Tate. It's the Greg Tate founded. Greg Tate, Jared, Michael Nickerson lid. Um, 16 to 25 piece. We can play anything that we want to band. Oh, so this is Burt Sugar, the, 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 the full-on name for Burt Sugar. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. I understand now. It's abbreviation. It's acronym. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. So, Juliet and Romeo. Yeah, I'm in interested how you guys put together these tunes. So, it's the conduction thing, right? Would he come in with a book of words? You said sometimes he'd come in with a loop, but what about lyric-wise and stuff? That's all great. Okay. That's all great. He's a poet for sure. Yeah, absolute. Well, his writing was beautiful about music. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of times he would come in with like a, a guitar motif or something to have, have, have it kind of figured out on the guitar. Yeah. And, then, and then he would let folks just, you know, add themselves to it. But when you're talking that many cats in the band, how, how did how did it get uh, parted well, out? Conduction, yeah. conduction, you, you can be conducted in and you can be conducted out. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. You conducted out. Yeah. I heard the story once about Ennio uh, Marconi, right? Uh, who's that who's the third chair trumpet? And, you know, right here. Okay, please leave. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of that, talk about a character builder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's more than one way to build a character, people. <laughs> okay. So tell me about Wretched of the Earth. Oh, that's a Renee Akan um, composition, actually. Greg also would let other speaks people like, you know, um, compose for the band. Like Naomi's Lullaby is my composition. Oh, okay. But was like a lovely, lovely guitar player. Yeah. And um, had a, a really, really cool band by the name of Faith that also flirted with some national record companies and was, he's one of Greg's, you know, best, best friends. And um, he, that, you know, he came up with that riff and then I came up with the double stop bass part that uh, sounds like it's like a backwards loop, but it's, no, it's, it's actually played in real time, real just time. like yeah. that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we got kind of, I guess we got kind of hardcore with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the recordings themselves, were, were they where you practice or did guys went into studios or? oh yeah yeah we have a few studios peter carl's studio in brooklyn yeah um 
we did things at um there was another studio that whose name is escaping because when we did one record here most of the stuff we did at, at Peter Carl's studio in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Who's um, you know, master engineer. And of course Greg then would, would do the do the um the Miles thing where he would go back in and, and take loops, cut cut sections out, make songs out of them, call folks back in to, to like play some lyrics on top or to lay a horn solo on top or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it evolved the music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here, you gave me this uh, tune, Are You Insane? Stepped on, knows in hollow creep. She's ridden the world of simple parasites. She'll never be your victim. I've never been so right. She's only got one question. She's never been ordained. She's only got one question. Are you
from Pedro Show. Last music for this edition. Are you insane? BSAC. Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> the Thank Bird you Sugar noticing. Orchestra. Orchestra. So Sun Ra. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. Because you were talking about Chicago and stuff. You know, I read the John Zwed book, the Space is the Place. And I know he did a lot of time there. Learned a lot from Fletcher Henderson, R&B and stuff. And, I'm gonna uh, check it out. But then they ended up in New York City, of course, and then finally in Philadelphia, right? And, uh, Saturn Records and incredible story yeah. about Sun Ra. And John Gilmore, right? Duke Ellington yeah. asked him to join his band and he turned him down for Sun Ra. Yeah, check that out. John Coltrane. I listened to John Gilmore. Whoa. I mean, John Gilmore. And there's another cat from that band that's still touring, right? Marshall Allen. Marshall Allen in his 90s. Yeah. Much respect. Inspiration. Yeah. It's total inspiration. So you said right now. Because he's all about. Huh? You said right now. Well, I should say the other. Uh, the Ratchet Orchestra from uh, Montreal did in Search of Tones, Road 2, number 2, live huh. 2013. And finally, BSAC with Cool Dank. Now, you told me right now your current thing is the Jay's Bubble Troop. Yeah. So what's your yeah, plans? Gonna be, How you developing that? Um, right now, just in the studio. Right now, just in the studio, because I'm going to get get the you know you already heard um, you know you already heard one of the tunes, the raven. What well, was it? Slash, that. right? It was bubbling slash kill the buzzard. Yeah, you already heard that. So there's there's about eight other tunes that are close to being finished. Um. Of course, the you know the, the pandemic kind of like put a put a wrench in a few things. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. but we but, keep uh, on keeping on. We keep on keeping on. Yeah, you know the music has to come out. So, um, so Mike, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm hope I'm hopeful for the end of the year this year to be able to maybe the last quarter put out an EP of about six tunes. And then I'm gonna do the cameo. I'm gonna do the cameo thing. Okay. And the thing is, is from what this this is my take on it. They put out a record called Cameos, and it had the hit on it was Shake Your Pants. Right. And in those days, it was like you know if if you put out a record and you had a hit, then all of a sudden the record company was all up your wazoo about we need that second record. We right. need even bigger hit. Right. And so. And all of a sudden, there's this pressure on the band or the or the artist or whoever it might be to, in like sometimes three to four months, come up with even better product. So I noticed with Cameo is that they put out Cameos, Shake Your Pants. And then while they're out on the road supporting that, all of a sudden it comes out Knights of the Sound Table with Freaky Dancing. Right. And I'm thinking, where do they have the time to go and record? They probably recorded both releases in one session. Okay. Had had the second jam on the shelves so that they, 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 they didn't have to come off the road. Right. They released it. And now what this does, now that they have the second jam out, it allows them to go back through all the rooms that they played the first jam through. And when the second jam blows up even bigger than the first jam, it, it allows them to play even bigger rooms so they were able to stay out for two years rather than having that whole, 
the sweat down of trying to come up with another, you know, the second release. Yeah, what they call the sophomore thing. Yeah, right. It's, that was good thinking. Well, that was good thinking. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to release, you know, uh, an EP, and I'm going to have the second one ready to go. <laughs> yeah, good thinking. Now, how'd the band come together? Well, the band is really just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Man alone, man alone. I get it. So, so uh, I try to think of myself as being a together catch. You know? <laughs> People, bass players are powerful people. <laughs> hey. <I'm> Don't <laughs> underestimate us. <laughs> That's right. Hold the bottom. Jared, where can people find you on the internet? I don't really have a solo presence yet, but they can find me with um, BurntSugarIndex.com connected to the Burnt Sugar Orchestra. They can find me there. But you know, I have to tell you, I have a few things coming out that um, might surprise people. Like, I've been playing with Marshall Crenshaw the oh. last three and he actually called me just a few months ago to play on a, um, there's a Todd Rudengren, um compilation coming out. And um, I played on a, on a tune with him for that. I'm also playing with um, Ivan Julian, who's one of the original. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he voice. was on the show last month. Big hero yeah. to us, Minutemen. Him and Bob Quine. It, yeah, the Voidoid. Yeah, yeah. Love me some Ivan. So I'm, I'm on his new release. And we actually just did our first debut show um, a month ago with, with the new band. And I know he's, he's, he loved it. We all loved it. So we're gearing up to do that. So, I mean, I, there's Brunch Sugar, but I also have, you know, Marshall and I have Ivan. Um, You're talking about uh, Lump Bob. Star. Yeah. I guess he had to fight cancer, right? He did. He beautiful, did. Beautiful he man. fought the battle and he won. So, yeah, that's right. And, but, you know, it just even with like when you think about Greg, it does it does really bring to the forefront that you really need to do all you can and and, and, and don't wait. Do right, it. Right, do right, right. I'm with you, man. Yeah. I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, Thank you for having me. You're most kind. You're most kind, Jared. Please keep on keeping on. Yes, sir. Okay, bro. People. January 4th, 2022, Dishwap Pedro Show. Keep your powder dry.